everyone. Welcome back to the Streaming Science Podcast. Streaming Science is a student-driven effort to connect you with scientists and science topics for ultimately increasing our understanding of how science impacts our everyday lives. I'm Maggie Winfrey, a student at the University of Florida majoring in agricultural education and communication with a specialization in communication and leadership development. And I'm your host for this episode. You've tuned in to our H2NO series. In each track, you'll learn more about the water around us, from the faucet in our kitchen to the water running through our cities to the lakes, streams, and oceans around us. Water has the powerful ability to connect every living thing, plants, animals, people, agriculture, and natural resources. In this podcast interview, I talked to Dr. Sam Smith, a professor in the Soil and Water Sciences Department at the University of Florida about precision agriculture and its effect on water. Keep listening to learn more about what Dr. Schmidt H2 knows. So I have Dr. Schmidt with me here today. Dr. Schmidt, would you mind just introducing yourself first and tell us a little bit about you? My name is Sam Schmidt. I'm an assistant professor here at the University of Florida in the Soil and Water Sciences Department. Uh, My position is in watershed science and I have uh, a background in in hydrogeology. Um, I consider myself just an environmental geoscience scientist. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about how you got into researching and studying watershed science? Sure, Uh, yeah, so that one kind of goes back to when I was a kid. Was always interested in water, Uh, took some trips around the world and kind of saw how everyone was relying on water and how water impacted people. Um, That really kind of sparked the passion and wanting to, to uh, pursue water as a career is, is one of the interesting fields where there's not necessarily a, a predefined curriculum for it and so you can either go the engineering route or you can go the geology route uh, and so I decided I want to stay the geology side wanted to get more big picture more uh, integrated with with uh, society and so then I went to go pursue my PhD at Michigan State University and so there Uh, I started uh, looking at irrigation and agricultural issues uh, in the western part of the country, the High Plains area. And so I was in their geology department and then I also uh, picked up some specialty in uh, environmental science and policy. And so uh, that pretty much led me to where I'm at now, which is looking at these big, complex, integrated issues between uh, geology, environmental science, some engineering. Uh, society, policy, and how those all interact. Which one was your favorite to study? Yeah, uh, I, I look at that in terms of, of the perspective that you bring t- uh, to the topic. So uh, the way that I always de- describe it is um, if you look at a river and you're talking about a dam, uh, an engineer can say, yeah, well, we can build that dam and we know how to build it and we know how to make sure it won't fail and that kind of thing. Um, but a geologist will be thinking at longer time scales, and so um, they might say, yeah, this, this dam can hold for the next 50 years, but after a while, you know, the, the, the landscape around it might erode, the river might change its course. And so um, I like thinking a little bit more on the geology side of it, uh, a little bit more big picture, a little bit more long time scales. Uh, I think that helps in, when you start thinking about uh, long-term impacts of decisions. So short-term decisions have long-term impacts. So if we make a decision now, what's that going to do in the future? And that's uh, really how I approach a lot of my research questions. So um, I've always favored the, the geology side, um, environmental science side, a little bit more than the technical engineering side, um, just because that's, that's how my mind likes to process and likes to think. That's awesome. Um, I know that you do a lot of research in your um, appointment. Mm-hmm. 
um, and you're working with a lab currently. Can you tell me a little bit more about what your lab research is on and mm -hmm. who's in it and what mm -hmm. you're doing? Mm -hmm. My lab group is around 10 students. Uh, they, they, they are across the board and I think that's just because water is so interdisciplinary that um, you can be interested in it from a lot of different angles. We're looking at um, issues that people are currently affected by and, and how can we overcome those problems or overcome those issues to, to improve the livelihoods for others. Um, that's really the kind of things that we're doing in our lab is we're, we're looking at how people have interacted with the environment in the past we're applying that to the future, and then we're uh, connecting that to management plans or improved policies. Um, that way we can always move forward w while uh, meeting our, or, or achieving our, our resource goals. What is one trend that you are currently seeing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that one depends on where you're looking at in the country right now. Florida obviously is having a big urbanization issue. There's a lot of people coming to Florida really quickly, um, and so that's consuming up other different land types, land cover types. So. For example, if there's new urbanization, you're probably consuming, say, a wetland or you're consuming a grassland or a forest or um, different land types that, that would be in their more native state before mm -hmm. now becoming urbanized. Um, and so that obviously has a lot of resource implications, um, new energy demands, you're rerouting water to, to different places, you're changing the hydrology, you're changing um, the, the environment uh, slightly in, the, in those regions. Um, other trends that we're seeing across the board is just a push towards uh, improved efficiency, um, how we use our resources, um, trying to cut out the waste, um, but that also has some, some byproducts or side effects to it as well. Um, and so uh, you start to see how maybe a, a good or a well-intended policy or management plan might actually have negative side effects and what, what that looks like across the country or, or across the boundary. Interesting. That those intentions but the effects can be. Mm -hmm. So I noticed that there's a publication from 2016 on a research that you did with water management and mm -hmm. modern agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain a little bit more about that? Really what we were looking at is uh, the issue of the High Plains Aquifer which is a, a very, it's the largest groundwater resource in the United States mm -hmm. um, but it's being uh, over extracted. They're, they're pumping water very very quickly um, and that's unsustainable. Uh, and by that, it means there's a likely end to that behavior. Um, it mostly residential or agricultural use? It's almost entirely strictly for agriculture. Wow. Um, it's strictly uh, irrigated groundwater supplements to your, to your crops. Um, it's an area that, that doesn't get enough natural precipitation or enough natural precipitation at the right time that then you put it, that, so then you put on artificial applications. And mm -hmm. it's actually, you can kind of think about it as fossil water. Um, that, that resource, that groundwater reserve developed a long time ago with the development of the Rocky Mountains. And so uh, it doesn't get recharged, it doesn't get refilled uh, nearly as quickly as we're using it. Um, and so that's why it's really considered a, an unsustainable practice is it's, it, you can think about it as just a non-renewable resource. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that part of the country is growing a lot of, of major field crops like corn and soybeans, things that are very water intensive. Um, and if you don't have the water to, to grow them naturally, um, then you have to supplement. And so that's what's, what's happening here is it's turned into a really um, fertile area for crop and soybean production uh, mm -hmm. among a few other crops. but. Um, the result is is you're extracting the, the resource 
necessary to continue production. So do you think that, did any of your findings have to do with precision ag and how that could possibly benefit the decrease in the use of the high plains aquifer? Yeah, so that's actually where, uh, that was I think the, the largest merit of, of that effort. Um, and this goes back to what I was saying before in terms of, of well-intended actions having unintended consequences. Um, and so uh, around 1996, this area just overhauled their irrigation systems with high efficiency systems, strictly for the intention of trying to reduce water use. Um, and so what we found through that effort, uh, and it's just confirmed through some other efforts too, but what we found in that effort is that by switching to these high efficient systems, farmers were actually able to irrigate more area because it's a lower operation cost. Um, you can kind of think about this as like switching out a, your shower head. So if you have to pay for your water uh, at your apartment or your home and you have a, 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 a shower head that's not efficient at all and it's just pouring out a lot of water, you're gonna take a pretty short shower. But if you switch that out with a, a, a high efficiency shower head, now you can take a 20, 30 minute shower for the same price or the same cost as what you were doing in your short shower. And so we're seeing that same behavior in agriculture. Uh, we're seeing that this switch to efficient systems is actually leading to an expansion of irrigation. So while it is saving water per application, more application now is equaling the total amount of water use. And so um, even though switched to efficient systems to save water, there hasn't been any water saving uh, at the aquifer scale uh, that, that has been meaningful. Um, and so that trend can, can be seen in lots of different locations too, but that was uh, one of the things that we took away from that paper. And so the other thing to point out too is efficient systems are inherently not bad. Um, it's just how we use them changes. And so if we don't account for how we use them, then we might not be able to reach our goals. Um, efficient systems, because they do uh, use less water per area, that is really great. Um, they can have the same effect for a less input. Um, and so that, that something that is definitely uh, has a merit and that's something that is definitely worth pursuing in the future. It's just now it changes the, the rules to the game or it changes the conditions in which we're playing. And so we need to have a better understanding of how we relate to efficient systems as, as a society. So if we're not using them efficiently now, what do we do to change that? Yeah, so this this is the, the million dollar question yes. um, because you can, the, the simple answer there would be to put a cap on water use, but then you get into all these legal issues and that kind of thing. Um, there's You just have to get creative. You have to figure out um, how to incentivize uh, certain uh, behaviors into into daily life or, or, or how, to, how to incentivize decisions to follow a, an objective more. So um, one example of that is uh, every four years a, a U.S. Farm Bill comes out and in the Farm Bill there's usually some sort of economic incentive mm -hmm. for farmers and so um, they come out with insurance plans that says hey don't water as much and if your yields or your production drops below a certain limit we'll give you some money on that one. Um, so there, there's those types of things. There's uh, uh, like a cap and trade system. Um, a lot of this, this part of the country has a lot of uh, water permits or water limits. Um, and another thing that, that's really important is, um, so like the, like the Florida Friendly Landscape Program where they're looking to put a, a, a plant 
in the right location for that that um, for its geographic demand, if mm -hmm. you want to, or, or an environmental demand. Uh, you can do the same thing with with crops. So, for example, if we're growing corn, say in Texas, where precipitation is low, temperatures are high, but corn is a water-intensive crop, right? Um, before we would irrigate that to we would basically we would use irrigation in order to allow ourselves to grow corn in a place that doesn't have the water suitable for growing corn so through some sort of incentive then um, if you want to encourage a farmer to switch that behavior then you need to make it economically viable for them to not grow corn um, so that puts some value in other crops uh, more more uh, water saving crops or less intensive crops um, it puts value back more on dry land farming. And so you just have to, to change the, the game a little bit, centered around the idea of making money and just making sure that farmers can, can keep their pay um, as, as they continue. What are some um, less water intensive crops? Yeah, so you can, the easiest way to do that is to look at what was growing naturally um, in the area before pre-development or before we, we brought in new new plants, new crops, that kind of thing. So um, what's growing naturally? So in the High Plains, for example, that was in native grassland. So you can switch over to, to more grass type commodities. So just thinking about the agricultural industry in general, do you think that it's had, what type of impact has it had on water quality? Is it negative, positive, um, kind of in the middle? Yeah. Um, it's a loaded question. It is a loaded question. It's, it's a tough one because the, the the answer to that is what would the alternative be? So for example, if we make the argument that agriculture has had a negative impact on water and say, okay, well, what happens if we were to take out agriculture entirely? So then what would the impacts on water quality be? Probably a lot worse than what we would have with mm -hmm. agriculture. So um, any sort of manipulation to the landscape, any sort of interaction with a resource is going to degrade the quality um, in some way. So the fact that we use water and that we've cleared land for farms is going to have a negative effect compared to what would be considered natural or native. Um, at the same time though, it's less intensive um, or, or less disruptive than converting to an urban land. Um, agricultural still is like this semi-natural, semi-native state. Um, so long story short with that one, there has been some intensification to the quality of the resources. There is there is a degradation to the quality, um, whether that is more or less than an alternative is probably up for debate. So my take on that is I don't necessarily see agricultural use as um, a negative thing because I see it as a necessary thing. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's necessary, how can we make it better? Um, and there are certainly places where we can make it better so the impact on the environment is much less than it was in the past or um, basically I, I always see it as like trimming out the fat or um, if you want to use efficiency but efficiency like we mentioned has these other side effects that kind of lead into other rabbit holes so how do we cut out the waste so that way we can be as as um, as favorable for the environment as possible with that do you think that precision ag has had any effect um I would think positive mm -hmm. on water quality and with that would you be able to define precision agriculture mm -hmm. yeah uh, precision pre <laughs> precision agriculture 
you can think about that as an ever-increasing effort towards efficiency. Mm -hmm. um, if a plant requires one drop of water, why give them two? Um, if a plant requires one unit of phosphorus, why give them two? Right? Um, so in the past, when we water our crops, for example, or you can think about watering your garden. Um, if you water a garden, you are using your sprinkler and you're watering over the entire garden. Well, maybe only half of your garden is dry. Right? Maybe half of it was in the shade and actually has pretty good moisture content where the other half was in the sun and is dry. So in that case, we really only want to water the dry side. Um, that way the whole garden still is happy with its moisture content, but you used half less water. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, same thing goes for your fertilizers, um, other types of, of applications that you're putting onto your fields. Uh, the point is we want to have, we want to do more with less. Um, the reason why we can be pushing towards precision agriculture is strictly because of technology. Um, we can monitor better, we can observe better, we can um, analyze better. And so if you look at, at um, anyways, that's what precision agriculture is. It's just this ever increasing movement towards um, doing more with less. So in terms of water quality, uh, if you're doing more with less, then certainly you would have an improvement in water quality. Um, for example, going back to that, that two units of phosphorus, if you only need one, if you apply one to one, then there is no waste. If you apply to two, to, if you apply a two to one, where the plant needs one and you applied two, that means there's one left over, and so now that's in the environment, and that's mobile, and that might degrade water quality. So the more fat you can trim, or the more waste you can cut out, then the more improvement there would be on your water quality. That goes back though to the lessons from the High Plains paper, which talks about this idea of, of efficient systems might actually lead to more use. And so even though we might be, we're still not 100% perfect. Um, if, we, if we say before we were at 50% waste and now we're at 90% waste, but we've applied over a much larger area or um, done something to, to increase the magnitude at which we're working, um, then the, the waste might still be the same even though we have less waste per area. So that's the big trick right now, I think, in, in precision agriculture is making sure that um, as we get better at farming or as we get better at doing what we need to do, um, get better at reducing waste, that we don't keep our waste the same by spreading these behaviors over larger areas or taking advantage of, of efficient technologies. So Lake Okeechobee is having a lot of issues right now um, with water quality, a lot of runoff and algae blooms and mm -hmm. it leading to red tide and all those mm -hmm. sorts of things in Florida. Um, what is your opinion on it? What is the, the major cause of these, or if there even is one to pinpoint? Yeah. Um, many say it's residential, some say it's, many say it's agricultural use. Mm -hmm. um, just what is your take? Mm -hmm. Lake Okeechobee is a really big lake in Florida. If you look on a map of Lake Okeechobee, everywhere around it is going to be agricultural land. And so naturally, the public would, would blame agricultural use on the quality of Lake Okeechobee, just because those two are side by side. In reality though, Florida is a landscape that has a lot of competing interests between urbanization, tourism, agriculture, among other things. Like I was saying before, anytime you're interacting with the environment, you're going to degrade its quality. If you look at the water in Lake Okeechobee, it's flowing through not just farmland, but it's being interacted with lots of other things. So for example, 
if you go back to uh, early development stages, people were, were interacting with the natural hydrology or the natural flow of water. Um, and so that, before we could even farm, was a human interaction that, you, if you want to group that into urbanization, um, basically you're, you're, you're changing the, the way water flows, you're putting in canals, you're draining the landscape. Um, and so even before we could farm, we already degraded the quality or set it up for a long-term degradation in quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just farmers is, is kind of the takeaway here. It's this whole complex system. It's the idea that um, everybody living in Florida or visiting Florida is contributing to the issue. Um, and it's not to say it as, as, as in a negative way because it's something that we want to, to be able to overcome. So, um, and like I was saying too, with this idea of, of agriculture being necessary, um, urbanization is necessary, tourism is necessary, the way that we have Florida uh, set up right now. So um, it, it doesn't need to be viewed as this negative thing. It needs to be viewed as this is how we've set up our society and so now let's figure out ways to overcome it. It's not really a blame game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more just this is a full integrated issue that doesn't escape any one part of how we live and work in Florida. So, so I yeah. like the perspective of um, more of a whole issue mm-hmm. and something that we've done. So now we need to fix. Right, and the other change. thing to th- and the other thing to think about too is if you look at the commodities that are grown in that area, it's not strictly staying in Florida. Um, a lot of those are exported around the world. And so if you're meeting a demand for somewhere else in the world, maybe they're the ones, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it doesn't end. with Once you start pointing fingers, it, it, yeah. you can't, it's just a rabbit hole. You can't escape it. it. So um, it's, it's not, like I said, it's not a blame game. It's this idea of like, this is how it was and we can do better. So you talk about how precision ag and water are connected. Is everything connected, basically? <laughs> That's the geologist speak, yeah. Um, you can't escape interconnected systems uh, when you're dealing with environmental science or anything in the earth sciences. So um, everything's connected. If you pull one thread, it's like a blanket. If you pull one thread, mm-hmm. another one's going to get snagged and that kind of thing. So um, that's what makes it really challenging. Uh, and that's why it also is not a blame game, because you can't just blame one thing if everything's connected. It, it all has its impacts. and. Everybody makes decisions based on a thousand different reasons, and so um, those reasons all have their thousand different reasons, and uh, it you can't escape this idea that everything's connected, especially as we move more and more towards a global economy and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> um, as we close out, I just have a couple more general questions to ask you. So what do you love most about your job? Yeah, I love my job. Um, I really enjoy teaching. Um, I really enjoy having students in my lab. Um, I really like the mentoring side of it. Um, I teach a, a professional development course that um, I'm really excited about. I really like interacting with students. Um, I always kind of view it as I came from an area that, that never really felt super sciencey. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very corporate or, or, or um, blue collar business kind of thing. Um, but it never really had the, the, the science research um, presence. And so when I went to college, I didn't really even know what it looked like to be a scientist or that kind of thing. And so um, I've always been fortunate to be where I am based on people who have invested in me and having a really, um, really strong list of advisors or mentors. And so um, I like to, 
to also serve in that role. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot on how to be a really good advisor. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try my best to be a really good advisor. Um, and I try to just give as much, um, I try to, I try to set myself, I try to set my students up for as much success as I possibly can. That's good. Um, what do you enjoy least? Huh. Oh man. Um, you said all this good stuff. Yeah. The, I think what I enjoy least is the time component. There's just not enough time to do everything you want to do. And so it, it can start to feel stress or pressure, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. There's just so many cool things to, to figure out. Um, but if you don't figure it out quick enough, then we're on to something else. Um, there's, there's just a never ending list and a never, an ever growing list of problems that, that uh, impact the world. And like I mentioned before, our group is very applied and so um, you don't want to you don't want to miss a problem that can prevent a future problem mm -hmm. uh, and so you as a researcher you kind of feel that stress too of, mm -hmm. of like we got to get this out because it can help you know that kind of thing so I thought about how if you solve one problem five yeah come back up in its place yeah yeah kind of the outcome of solving that one problem yeah yep. so. And that's, that one is less discouraging because that's what keeps uh, the door open for more science. And so uh, that's one of the, the important things as a scientist is to never lock yourself into a room or never close all the doors. You always want to have more to walk through. And so um, I guess it's just pretty inevitable, though, once you're dealing with, with environmental issues to, to always have more things to, uh, or more doors to walk through or more problems to solve. Is there anything else you'd like to add? or anything you'd like to say to your listeners right now? Mostly just be aware of your surroundings. Um, understand that you are a part of a connected system. Um, and just understanding that interaction between people and the environment. Um, um, just knowing that it's a part of a, a, a system, an interconnected system that has the ability to, to overcome both sides. I mean, humans have technology to adapt, the environment regenerates to adapt, and so um, even if we make one mistake, it doesn't mean we can't fix it. Uh, and so there's wanting to have a general understanding of, of how these interact, especially when it comes in with, with timelines. I mentioned that we're, um, I'm a geologist, so in thinking of long timelines, um, if something's going to extend beyond, say, the life of a human, um, that might be longer than what we're interested in. So understanding the, 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 the time or the, the impact in terms of its duration, I think is really important. I agree. Um, thank you so much for being my interviewee. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks for having me. going through this with me. Thanks, Dr. Schmidt, for taking the time for this interview. I hope that all y'all learned a little more about precision ag and water and the interconnectedness of it all. Um, continue our journey through the H2NO series as we further explore the most essential nutrient we need as humans, water. Um, and follow Streaming Science on our website, SoundCloud, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm your host, Maggie Winfrey. Thanks for listening.